And now, with her weekly commentary, That's How I See It, we go to Sleza Givens with breaking news from the palace. Thanks, Hezekiah. This morning, our palace correspondents have reported that we have lost our queen. I repeat, we've lost our queen. This reporter places all the blame on King Xerxes himself. I know. He rules over 127 provinces that stretch from India to Ethiopia. So yes, he is kind of a big deal. The problem is, he knows it. For half a year, he has been completely showing off his kingdom to any bigwig who would jump on the bandwagon with him. More like an ego trip, if you ask me. With the road trip finally over, the real party began seven days ago and hasn't stopped since. This exclusive party was held at the spectacular Palace Garden. Sadly, we've learned that many of our guests have not appreciated this beauty because they were not exactly... What's the word I'm looking for? Sober. Basically, this has been a unlimited open bar for seven days. Did I mention that only men were invited to this party? You may be asking yourself, what were the women doing? Well, if it was me, I'd be hiding. But our queen, the beautiful Vashti, has been hosting a banquet for all the women. This is where our story gets interesting. It was tweeted that on the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine... That's a nice way of saying he was completely schnockered. He called his seven eunuchs over. If you don't know what a eunuch is, go Google it, because I'm not going there with you. Anyway, it looks like the king ordered his eunuchs to go and get Vashti so he could show her off. Sort of like a a weird show and tell. I wonder why he thought he had to send seven men to go get her. Maybe they were going to carry her in like a fancy dessert, or maybe he just knew that there were safety in numbers. All I know is that the only thing he told her to wear was her crown. What a pig. He wanted her to come in wearing her crown. Only her crown, so that he could show off how hot she was in front of all his drunken friends. Ugh, I think I just vomited a little bit in my mouth. I wonder what those eunuchs talked about on their way to get her. Probably played rock, paper, scissors to find out who got to tell her. Oh, maybe not the scissors. (laughs) Many Twitter and Facebook posts confirmed the next part of the story. She said, no. Kind of makes you a huge Vashti fan, doesn't it? Now, I don't know exactly how she worded it, but however she did, it completely ticked off the king. I mean, he had been bragging about this queen who would do anything for him... And then she refuses him in front of all her drinking buddies? (laughs) He looked like a fool at the party that was supposed to be about how awesome he was. But Xerxes' stupidity didn't end there, no sir. It has been confirmed that he, in his drunken wisdom, decided what to to do what kings are supposed to do when they're actually being idiots. He went and told their wise men, who were also at this party, who were also schnockered. In a loud voice, the king asked these intoxicated wise men what should be done about Queen Vashti's disobedience to the king's summons. Well, in this reporter's mind, the wise men must have had a moment of clarity because even in their fog, they realized that Vashti had caused a serious problem, not just for the king, but for themselves. If women... If their women got word about what Vashti has done, well, basically, we women might start 
thinking or having opinions or, God forbid, say the one word that they feared more than the impending hangover, no. Right there, they decided that they had to do something. They advised the king to make an example of Queen Vashti and to scare all of us women back into submission. They told the king that a law should be made that banned Vashti from his presence and she should never see him again. He should send her away and find a new queen, a better queen. So, in his drunken wisdom, that's exactly what our dear king did. No more Vashti, no more of us women thinking for ourselves. A new queen, a better one. The king was unavailable for comment. Our sources say he's busy spending time with a totally different throne, the porcelain one. <clears throat> so, as of last night, a decree went out through the land that every man should be ruler of his own household. So much for women's rights, ladies. Guess we'll have to wait another 2,400 years. We have no report on how Vashti took the news. However, I think she's probably good. I mean, it had to be exhausting to be queen to this man. You know, it just doesn't seem fair. Where was their God in all of this? <laughs> this is Sleaza Givens. Back to you, Hezekiah. North Korea, meanwhile, we have just learned. A bigoted middle class is holding back. This man is an atheist. Or real news. You are shaken by the severity. I want to thank you especially. Uh, one of your good friends. The whole thing was a bit of a... Joining us now, I guess you're opposed to the Where is God in all of this? Have you ever asked that question? Find yourself in the back of a police car or waking up in a rehab or a detox unit. Where is God in all of this? You get a foreclosure notice or a guy comes to repossess your car. Where is God in all of this? Your boss says, you know what? We don't really have a place for you here in our company anymore. Where is God in all of this? Your friend or the person you're dating or your spouse says... I've had enough, and walks out the door. Where is God in all of this? You wake up and you discover that the president or the legislators or the courts have changed the laws of our land in a way that doesn't make any sense at all, that you can't understand, and you ask the question, where is God in all of this? We start a new series today from the book of Esther. If, uh, if Sleaze's commentary didn't make any sense at all, let me encourage you to go ahead and take your Bibles out now. And during the, uh, during the message, you can read the first chapter and it will begin to put some pieces together. Uh, take out the North Point app. You can follow along later. There's going to be some fill in the blanks on the message. Um, if nothing else, go home this afternoon and read the 10 chapters of the book of Esther. Because we're going to, over the next seven weeks, be in this book Discovering what God has to say to us. Uh, in, order to, in order to help make some sense of Esther and the story of Esther, let me, let me just give some background for you to kind of paint the picture. If you go back to Abraham, God makes a promise with Abraham. 
and says to him, you know what, through your descendants, you're going to bless all nations. I'm going to give you this land, and through this place, uh, we're going to have a special relationship, and the whole world is going to be blessed. That promise is affirmed to Abraham's son Isaac, to his grandson Jacob, to his great-grandsons, the 12 sons that become the leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, The nation ends up in Egypt in slavery. Moses leads them out of slavery. They wander in the wilderness for 40 years, and they finally enter this land that God has promised them, the land that we now know as the country of Israel. God, as they live there, God provides judges to help keep the nation on track until finally the people say, you know what, we don't want judges, we want a king. Everybody else has a king, we want a king too. And, and God says, you really want a king? And they say, yeah, we really want a king. And God says, okay. So he gives them King Saul and David and Solomon. And after Solomon, a series of kings, but what happens after Solomon is that the kingdom is split in half. There are 10 tribes that are a part of the northern kingdom called Israel. Um, They have a whole series of kings that forget God and that worship idols and that lead the nation in in worshiping idols. The southern kingdom is two tribes. Um, And and, uh, that, that kingdom has some kings that lead the people away from God and it has some kings that lead the people back to God. But you've got this split kingdom In 722 BC, Assyria comes in and attacks the northern kingdom. And, and they wipe them out. They, they, um, uh, well, I'll talk more about what they do in just a second, but they, they conquer, uh, the nation of Israel. That's what the ten tribes are called. Um, and if you've ever heard people talk about the lost tribes of Israel, when people say, oh, we think that they're part of the lost tribes of Israel, they're talking about those ten tribes that were, that were conquered by Assyria. Because once they're conquered by Assyria, we never hear from those tribes again. Uh, a little bit later, that's 722 in 606 B.C., um, uh, the, the nation of Judah, the two southern kingdom tribes, are conquered by Babylon in, in 606. What would happen when a, at this point in history when a king would conquer a nation? He would come in, they would win the victory, they would tear down the cities, do that kind of stuff, and they would take all of the leaders of the people and, uh, and they would disperse those leaders throughout their kingdom. They would put them in a place where they didn't know the language, where they didn't know the culture, where they didn't know people who would follow them. And, and effectively, they destroyed their ability to lead. Um, if they allowed the cities to continue to, to exist, they would bring in their own leaders from their own kingdom into that city, and they would take over. And, um, and they would effectively rule by cutting off the head of leadership for a nation. About 70 years after um, Babylon conquered Judah, Babylon is conquered, is conquered by Persia in uh, 539 B.C., Um, by a ruler named Cyrus. Three years later, in 536 B.C., Cyrus the king um, allows Ezra and Nehemiah and a group of Jews to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls of the city. I'm trying to help give you some perspective again to to get you there. Um, um, About 50 years farther, if you go 50 years uh, uh, down the road... um, Not all of the Jews returned to Jerusalem, just a small portion of them did. Many of the Jews remained in the kingdom of of Babylon that uh, was there and that had been conquered by by Persia. Um, 
The king of Persia, Cyrus, dies. His son, Darius, succeeds him. And Darius is the king of Persia that launches into the Greco-Persian Wars. Um, he's the, he tries to conquer Greece and doesn't, and um, after his last try, uh, Darius uh, gets sick and dies, and his son, Xerxes, succeeds him. Xerxes comes to power in 486 B.C. Lots of history, right? Um, you, you all have that look that says, is there going to be a test on this? Uh, <laughs> uh, there's not, okay? But what I want to do, the reason that I'm giving you history is to help you understand that, this, that the book of Esther is not a made-up story to try and teach a lesson. It's not a fable. It's actual history. It's a historical book that describes what happened and that allows us to see the hand of God. Um, if you look in Esther chapter 1, as it starts, it says, In the third year of King Xerxes, let me, let me just pause for a second. If you've got your Bibles and you're looking in your Bibles, it may say Ahasuerus. Uh, for the name of the king. Ahasuerus is the Greek name of King Xerxes. Same guy, two different names, two different languages to, to get you there. So, so uh, in the third year, he brings together all these people in the capital, throws this six-month-long party. Historians tell us that what was probably happening at that point in time was not that he was just throwing this wild party. He was, he was creating a council of war. He was bringing together all the leaders. He was recruiting leaders and soldiers so that he could do what his father wasn't able to do and go in and conquer Greece. Darius was the king when, when um, Persia had fought um, Greece at the city of Marathon, where after the battle and the Greeks defended the city, the guy runs 26 miles to Athens, uh, shouts, we won, and dies. And that's where we get the Marathon race from. Um, Xerxes is the king of Persia that uh, Hollywood made the movie about called 300 um, that is about uh, King Leonidas that defends this mountain pass with 300 men from Sparta um, and uh, faces this overwhelming army from uh, Xerxes. So the party is there before that battle takes place, the battle of 300, but uh, the, the people come together. Xerxes is trying to create this council of war uh, uh, so that he can take over Greece. Xerxes' kingdom is big. You have to have a sense of who this man was. Xerxes' kingdom is big. Take a look at that and, and just kind of overlay that in your mind with uh, what you know about geography. Now look at the state of Texas superimposed on that. This is a time with no airplanes, right? The fastest way you can travel is by ship. Um, if you're traveling on land, it's by horse. That's a, a vast, vast kingdom, we have a sense of who Xerxes is in Esther chapter 1. He's rich and powerful. He is this guy with all kinds of power. And he hosts this party for the entire city. At the end of the party, uh, the, at the end of the six months, um, for a full week, he hosts a party where, uh, where the liquor is there available for everyone in, um, in unending uh, limitations. They can drink as much as they want. Most of you have been to a wedding that has an open bar, right? And you know that three or four hours into that wedding reception, it gets pretty crazy, right? Picture seven days of open bar with hundreds, perhaps thousands of men. I, I think it probably didn't take very long at all before their conversation drifted from things of war to things of women. And at the end of the party, at the end of the party, 
Xerxes, in his drunkenness, has this idea that he's going to have his wife come out in front of all of these guys, come to the party because of how beautiful she is. Um, Xerxes' wife, Queen Vashti, the, the, um, the eunuchs come to get her, and Vashti says, no, I'm not doing that. I'm not going into this place where people have been drunk for seven days. It's full of men. I'm, I'm not going to do it. She refuses to be paraded in front of all these men. Now, you have to know about Vashti um, that, uh, that she recognized that there, were, um, th- that there was danger in saying no. We, we know from later in the book of Esther that Xerxes, when he was in his palace, if somebody came in and interrupted him, he's just walking around, and somebody came up to talk to him, and he didn't ask to talk to them first, that they would automatically be executed. They would be killed on the spot. Unless with his scepter, he said, yeah, go ahead and come on in. Xerxes did not mind taking lives at all. One historian talks about him cutting the, the son of uh, one of his allies in half because this ally asked for his son's life uh, to be spared. And Xerxes said, no, and cut him in in half in front of him. Um, Vashti, when she refuses King Xerxes, essentially says, I would rather die than go to that party. That's taking a stand, right? Well, Xerxes is drunk, right? He's trying to make sense of stuff. And so he, as... as, uh, as Sleaze has shared, he goes to his counselors, to his advisors, and says, what do we do? What's the law say to do? It's kind of like the president saying to the attorney general, what's, the, what's legal for me to do in this situation? The only problem is the president's drunk and the attorney general's drunk in, in uh, this story of Esther. The advice that they give is interesting because I think that they determined that, that, uh, that the counsel that they gave was worse than killing her. They decide that Vashti is going to be banished from the palace, banished from the king. She's never going to see Xerxes again. So she goes from this position of power and fame to being a nobody out in the middle of the country. Xerxes likes that idea, and that's what happens. Vashti is exiled, never to see Xerxes or the palace or power again. So that's the, that's the snapshot of Esther chapter 1. Well, you can go home now. Um, it's like, what? What? What's that about? Where is God in all of this? Where is God in this story? You know, if you read the first chapter of the book of, uh, of Esther, God's, God is not mentioned ever in that chapter. As a matter of fact, if you read all 10 chapters of the book of Esther. The name of God is not found anywhere there. It's an incredible thing. Well, um, Where is God when he seems incredibly absent in the midst of events? He's working even if we can't see him yet. Charles Swindoll wrote this about the book of Esther. I think it's so good. He said, God's presence is not as intriguing as his absence His voice is not as eloquent as his silence. Who of us have not longed for a word from God, searched for a glimpse of his power, yearned for the reassurance of his presence, only to feel that he seems absent from the moment, distant, preoccupied, yet later we realize how present he was all along. 
Two weeks ago, we talked about this concept that God works upstream in our lives. You know, when you're standing on the bank of a river, there are things that happen upstream that you see the evidence of in front of you, but you can't see what happened up there. The port of New Orleans, the Mississippi River Delta, exists because the river has done its work in Minnesota, in Iowa, in Illinois, in Missouri, in Tennessee, long before it got to Louisiana. God's been working upstream, and at this point of Esther's story, God is working upstream in her life, even though she's not been introduced to the story at all at this point. That's true in your life as well. It doesn't matter if you believe in God. God is working upstream in your life. It doesn't matter what circumstances exist in your life. He's actively working behind the scenes, in the shadows, even in the tragedies of life because he has a plan for you, because he wants to be in relationship with you. That's what we're going to see played out over the next seven weeks as we study through the book of Esther. Let me give you some real practical lessons, if I can, from Esther chapter 1. The first is this. Um, this is pretty profound, so get your pens out, right? <laughs> Nothing much good happens at drunken parties. Your parents told you that, right, when you were in high school. Nothing much good happens at drunken parties. Being at a drunken party is not a very good place to be. As a matter of fact, there's some pretty clear teaching in the New Testament that being drunk at all is not a good place to be. I don't know if you know this verse or not, Ephesians chapter 5 says, Don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Now, I know probably yesterday, uh, when you were working around the house, you used the word debauchery in a sentence, right? That's a word that we say all the time. It's important to understand what that is. Debauchery debauchery, uh, means a, a recklessness, a wildness that's tied to sensuality. Debauchery is the word, it's exactly what you would expect if you think about what happens when people start drinking and there's men and women around and stuff goes crazy. That's debauchery. Um, There's a reason why sexual assault often is connected to alcohol. Don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Why Why is it that we think that life is better once that we've had a few drinks? Why is it that we think that we're more relaxed, more comfortable, more confident after we've had some alcohol or some drugs? In reality, we're just a lot more likely to make really bad decisions because we're intentionally tying half our brains behind our back. Something inside me grieves when I hear followers of Jesus say, you know, I think I'm going to go get drunk tonight. They would never say, you know, I think I'm going to go steal from my neighbor's tonight. You would never say, ah, you know what? I think I'm going to go lie to my boss tonight. Because scripture is clear about those things. But they don't say that about getting drunk. Don't don't misunderstand me here. I'm not on a crusade for prohibition. I don't think that drinking is sin. Um, Come on, Jesus made, he turned water into the best wine that's ever been created. But going into a place or a situation where everyone is getting plastered, it's just not wise. Vashti knew that. Vashti knew it was not the right place for her to be. 
Second thing from, from Esther chapter 1. Uh, good advice is rarely found from someone who's drunk. Another pretty profound statement there. Uh, yeah, yeah, that seems pretty self-evident, doesn't it? But how many times have you or someone you know said, you know what, I'm going to go ask that person after they've been drinking. I, I wonder what that person thinks about this situation. And we get advice from somebody that's got no business giving advice to anybody about anything. James chapter 1 says this, if any of you lacks wisdom, what? Ask God. God will give generously to all without finding fault, and he will give you that wisdom. Third thing, when you take a stand, expect that there will be consequences. When you take a stand, expect that there will be consequences. Those consequences will not always be pleasant. If you're taking a stand for the right things, it's still worth it. Do you understand that Vashti lost everything because of the stand that she took? She lost her position, her power, uh, her fame, her, her wealth. She lost everything. My favorite story in the Old Testament about taking a stand is the story that, that happens in Daniel chapter 3. It's about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These three guys, Babylon has conquered the southern kingdom. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are, are, are Jewish guys who are committed to God. And they're in Babylon, and, and, um, and, and they're just kind of counselors in, in Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. Nebuchadnezzar builds this big statue, and every day when music goes off, everybody in the kingdom is supposed to bow down and worship this statue. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego uh, believe in God, and they say, you know what, we're not going to bow the knee to this statue that Nebuchadnezzar has made. Um, Daniel chapter 3, verse 14 says this, Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, and Meshach, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold that I've set up? If you don't worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to, to Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. He will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he doesn't, we want you to know, your majesty, we're not going to serve your gods or worship the image of gold that, that you've put up. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say, you know what? We're not going to bow no matter what. You can throw us in the furnace, and God has the ability to deliver us from that furnace. But even if he doesn't, even if we die, we're still not going to bow to that idol. Nebuchadnezzar throws him in the fiery furnace. An angel come and appears in their midst. Uh, they're taken out of the fiery furnace. They survive that whole ordeal supernaturally by the hand of God. They took a stand. Fourth thing, and this is really the heart of the message from, from Esther chapter 1. Um, understand that God is still working. God is still working when leaders are capricious. Um, I, I, capricious is maybe a word that you don't use a ton as well. Uh, it means that, it, that you're given to sudden changes in mood or behavior, that you're impulsive, that you're unpredictable. It's a, a word I chose intentionally because it seems oftentimes that our leaders in our country are capricious in the decisions that they make. It's like, where did that idea come from, right? Anybody, anybody recognize that? Where is God in all of that? You know, um, it doesn't matter what your political persuasion is. At some time during the presidency of Bill Clinton or George Bush or Barack Obama 
or Donald Trump, you have thought multiple times, our president is an idiot, right? At some point, you've thought that. You've thought, how did he get elected? How, did, how is he making the decisions that he's making? It doesn't matter what your background is. You ask the question, where is God in this? God is still working, no matter what the motivation or character of the people are who lead our nation, our state, our city, our county, and our families. How do I know that? Because God was still working when Pharaoh uh, passed this law that all um, Israelite baby boys should be killed. God was still working at that point in time. And so this little baby boy is saved by his family, rescued by Pharaoh's daughter, and this boy grows up in Pharaoh's palace. He's taught how to lead, how to manage people, how to do all kinds of stuff. And God uses that baby, Moses, 80 years later, to lead the nation of Israel out of bondage in Egypt. God was still working. God was still working when Herod uh, authorized the murder of all of the babies in Bethlehem, all the baby boys in Bethlehem, that caused Mary and Joseph and Jesus to flee Bethlehem and go to Egypt so that a prophecy that had been made hundreds of years earlier that the Messiah would come out of Egypt could be fulfilled. God was still working in that. God was still working when Pilate said, you know what, I don't find any fault in Jesus, but go ahead and crucify him. God was still working in that process because we would not be able to receive forgiveness for our sinfulness if Jesus hadn't gone to the cross, if Jesus hadn't Uh, if Jesus hadn't been resurrected. And God was still working in Acts chapter 8 when all of a sudden the Roman government said, we don't like Christians anymore, and they began to persecute the followers of Jesus. They began to feed them to the wild animals. They began to put them on display in in uh, in the Colosseum and in the arena. That God was still working when they were arrested because that persecution caused the followers of Jesus to spread, uh, to leave Jerusalem, to go into Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth, telling people that Jesus was the Savior of the world. God was still at work in those things, even though those political leaders' lives were a mess. So what are our action steps today? What do we take away from Esther chapter 1? The first is this. Know that God is working even if you can't see him. Know that God is working even if you can't see him. Be confident that that he is working no matter what your circumstances. Trust him, especially when he's absent, when he seems to be absent. Second thing is this. Avoid places and situations where stupid reigns. Okay? Third thing. Take a stand for the right things. And be willing to accept the circumstances for, the, for the, those stands that you take. Be willing to take a stand for the right things and recognize that there are going to be circumstances and that that's okay. Fourth thing that I think is a, a challenge for us out of, out of this chapter is to pray for our leaders. Paul, Paul wrote to Timothy and said, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all people to be saved 
to come to a knowledge of the truth. Where is God in all this? Where is God when leaders are capricious, when they make decisions that seem to be dumb and stupid and wrong? He's on his throne. He's all around us, doing his work, accomplishing his purpose, even if we can't see it. You know, um, for a whole bunch of years, church camp has been uh, an environment where kids and teens have come to learn about Jesus and come to know him and give their lives to him. Um, Church camp uh, is something that had a huge impact on me when I was growing up. It uh, it, uh, helped me develop friendships with people, helped me learn about Jesus, helped me learn about uh, God's word in incredible ways. When I became an adult, and especially as I had an opportunity uh, to go into ministry, I thought, you know what, I want to give back to kids who are growing up and going to church camp. And so over the years, I think I've been um, on staff of about 30 different weeks of church camp um, over the last years, okay? Lots of times. One of the things that happens at church camp, maybe it happens at other kind of camps too, is that they, they do these fun activities at night that are just there for fun. Uh, the, the one activity that I want to talk about right now is, is called a faculty hunt or a counselor hunt. It, what happens is all the kids get together in one place, the faculty goes out and hides someplace in the camp, and then the kids get dispersed and they get to try and find the counselors. They get points if they get the counselors, bring them back, that kind of thing. Um, it's, it's always fun. Uh, the, the last week of camp that I worked in Ohio, there was a guy on staff named Will. He had graduated from high school. He had bright red hair. He had a really thick beard that made him look lots older than he was. But he, he had just graduated from high school. He loved camp. He had grown up going to camp since he was probably seven or eight years old, sometimes multiple weeks of camp every summer. He loved camp. Uh, we were doing a counselor hunt uh, a year or two before that. Will came. Uh, he, he, uh, he's an Eagle Scout, and so he did camo, face paint, the whole deal, and spent 45 minutes underground in a pile of leaves um, hiding, from the, uh, hiding from the campers. Uh, Will, Will was great. So, so the last year that I went, we do the, the counselor hunt. The kids get together. The counselors all go out to hide. And Will goes into the bathroom. And he shaves his beard. He puts on a hat, puts on gloves. He throws on a sweatshirt that had been his dad's that had the camp logo on it that was 10 or 12 years old. He put on a pair of his dad's pants so he didn't look like he was a teenager wearing clothes at all. He went to the camp office and got a wheelbarrow, a rake, uh, and a shovel and went to the center of the camp and began to work on the flower beds there. They ring the bell, the campers all take off and run all over the camp to try and find the counselors. They run right past Will as he's working there on the ground doing his stuff. For the next 30 or 40 minutes... The kids are going everywhere. I found this person. I found that person. Where's Will? Where's Will? Where's Will? They come up to this guy working on the flower beds and said, do you know where Will is? And, and he lowers his voice and says, Will, I think he's over there. So all the kids take off and run that direction. Bell rings in the game. Everybody goes back. They find out, you know, who, who found which counselors, that kind of stuff. All the kids are there together. Um, and, and they're all saying, where's Will? Where's Will? And into that... Uh, into that room, into that uh, building, walks Will, takes off his hat, takes off his gloves, and the place just erupts. These fourth, fifth, and sixth graders, I knew that was him, I knew it. No, you didn't. You know, they didn't. What was Will doing? He was hiding in plain sight, doing the work. Where is God 
in whatever mess you're living in. Where is God when it seems like our nation's leaders do goofy things? He's hiding in plain sight, doing his work in our lives. Let's pray. God, it blows our minds to think about how you work upstream. It's hard for us to comprehend that that when we're living through difficult times, through tragedies, through stuff that just doesn't make any sense to us at all, it's, it's hard for us to comprehend that when we can't see you, that you're still there. Lord, I, I ask that you'd forgive us when, when we feel like we have to see what the end result is. Help us to trust you, God. Grow our faith in us because we know that you're working. You know that, we know that you don't leave us, that you're involved in every part of our lives, God, that you've been working upstream long before this moment that, that we exist in right now. Help us to trust you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.